I want to give Mari and the team a hand. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you have a Bible, uh, if you can open to Psalm 22 as we continue our Psalm series, it's page 457. If you want to grab one of the black Bibles, you'll see under the chairs and follow along there. Psalm chapter 22. Um, this Psalm really focuses in on, uh, it's really like a archetypical, you might say, like this, this is like the prototype Psalm in a sense. This, this shows this real hard emotion meeting the truth of healing and hope that we have. In God, this, this collision that we've been talking about in the series, uh, we call the series Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. Here in Psalm 22, it's the collision of suffering. We're colliding with suffering here. We've all suffered. We've all had those moments when we are asking God, why does it have to hurt so bad? Why, uh, why are you not healing me now? Why are you not fixing this problem now? We've all been there. And so we can relate to this psalm. And of course, this psalm is a psalm that was lived out by Jesus as well as being lived out by King David when it was originally written. So we're going to read this. It's one of the longer psalms that we've been looking at. And so what I'm going to do is read the first part of it, and then we'll get through all the verses as we go through the sermon. But if you'll follow along with me, we'll start off by just reading the first part. Psalm 22 says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David you're like me, don't you wish you could hear these tunes? Wouldn't that be kind of cool to hear them? We've lost the tunes, but we still have the meat here of the song. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And then I'm going to skip to the end. Verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. The psalm starts in a very difficult place. It ends with a promise that there is going to be a, a proclamation of salvation in the Lord. Um, let me pray for us and ask God to help us today. God, we pray that you would teach us today. Lord, for some of us, it's hard to even remember those hard places of suffering. And so we pray for extra grace today as we remember, uh, imagine, walk back through some of those places we've been. God, we pray that in this process that we would be amazed at you and your grace. We pray that you would teach us how to be a people that suffer well as we follow our Lord Jesus who suffered for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can remember a couple of times in my life where the the pain I was going through physically, one time being hospitalized even, was just so bad. All I could do is just moan and cry out to God. God, make it stop. God, help me. Some of you have been in that place where you've been through just horrible pain, pain you didn't ever imagine you could go through. Some of you have been through emotional pain like that, where maybe it wasn't a physical pain in your gut, but it was something that was hurting your heart. It was just, you were just struggling through and you were saying, God, can you please fix this? God, can you please make this go away? We, we all know what it's like to be in that place of suffering where we just feel like God's not there. 
And we're wondering, where have you gone, God? What are you doing? Why, why does it have to keep hurting like this? And you're questioning God and you're crying out to him. One of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is that not only do we believe that Jesus suffered for us, right? We believe he took our place and took our sins on the cross. So he paid the price for our sins and he gives us his righteousness. And that is, that's the center of our faith. But we also believe this, this other beautiful side of that, that he suffered like us, right? Like he can sympathize with us. Not only did he suffer for us and gives us salvation through that suffering on the cross, but he's been everywhere that you have been. He's been everywhere that I have been. He's been abandoned. He's been abused. He has been tortured. He has been betrayed by his best friends. He knows what it's like to go through the suffering that we go through. And so Hebrews says that this is this very important thing that should make us cling to Jesus all the more. In Hebrews 4, 14, it says, we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens for us, right? He's like led the way and he's the priest that's made the sacrifice that's perfect so that we can be in heaven with God. And it says in Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's saying he can sympathize with us in every way. Right? Sometimes we say, oh, well, you know, that's different for him. Or this person doesn't understand what I've been through. Have you ever, you ever felt that way? Just in your relating to other people, they're trying to encourage you, and you're like, you don't understand what I'm going through. Jesus understands what you're going through. He understands it better than you do. He's been through far worse things than we've ever been through. Sometimes our suffering is standing in a long line at the grocery store, right? I mean, sometimes our suffering is small. He's, he's been through everything. The small suffering, he lived a normal, mundane human life, but also the great suffering, physical pain, emotional betrayal. He, he's been through it all. And he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And so Hebrews 4, 16 says, because of that, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that's going to be our, our governing theology of what we see here in this, this suffering psalm and what we see in all of the psalms of suffering, that Jesus has been there. And we see this psalm fulfilled in all of the Gospels, that this psalm was lived out by Jesus. This suffering was lived out by him. He fulfilled it. He's the type that David was foreshadowing when he first wrote this and experienced this in Psalm 22, Jesus lived it out. Jesus lived it out. And so he is our hope. The first thing that I want us to look at as we go through the psalm, as we move through the major sections, there's three big sections. Section 1 through 11 is the first section where we're going to see some kind of back and forth between pain, but also remembering God's faithfulness. And then in section 2, we're going to see just this real vivid artistic but, uh, portrayal of the pain of suffering. And then section three, we're going to see where that leads, where it goes to, this, this future where everything's going to be made right. And that's verses 22 through 31. So if you go back and study it this week, kind of three major sections, kind of different movements to this poem or to this song that David wrote. And the first section we're going to look at is the cries of suffering. So this is a basically a model prayer for us. This is a model way to cry out to God. Uh, both King David as our great king over Israel and then King Jesus, the king of kings, have modeled this for us. They both prayed this, and so we can pray this too. 
to look back again at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Most of us don't think it's okay to pray that way, right? Sometimes I like to have you take a vote and raise your hands. I'm not going to do that here. But I can just tell you that most of you don't feel comfortable praying that way. I know I struggle with that. I would struggle to feel comfortable praying that way. It doesn't feel appropriate, right? It doesn't feel composed enough. But we have this model, again, from King David and King Jesus to pray this way. In those moments when we feel completely abandoned and alone, it's okay to tell God, God, I feel completely abandoned and alone. God, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? We need to pray honestly. We need to share with God the the deepest pain in our soul. We don't clean it up first before we come to him. We come to him. He cleans us up. We come to him with that pain. He's the one that brings the resolution. We don't bring the resolution. We leave that to God. God, where are you? What are you doing? Now, we see a back-and-forth dance here. He goes then and reminds himself of of the kind of saving and the kind of rescue that God has done in the past throughout history. And so that's a good pattern for us to follow as well, right? We want to be honest. We want to say, God, I don't know where you are. I feel completely abandoned. I don't know why I'm all alone right now. I need your rescue. But then also we want to remind ourselves and God that he's a rescuing God. God, I've seen you rescue in the past. That's your history. That's the kind of stuff you do. We see that in verse 3. He says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. So God's enthroned anyway, whether we praise him or not, right? But it's this picture that when we praise him, we're declaring and painting the picture of his kingship and his sovereignty. We're saying he is the king of the universe. And so he's enthroned in the praises of his people. Verse 4 says, And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's reminding himself and he's reminding God. The kind of praying we see Moses do as well. Reminding God of his glory. Reminding God of how he can save. And then people will tell about it. And we'll get that more at the end of the psalm as well. But he's reminding himself, God, in the past you've been a saving God. In the past our fathers trusted you and you rescued them. In the past you took away their shame. In the past, this is the way you've worked in history. When you look back at the Exodus and when you look back to Joshua and you look back to Judges, God's the kind of God that saves people, that rescues people. So he's reminding God of that, but then he goes right back to the pain of the situation again. Look at verse 6. Back again to the honesty and pain of his torment, his suffering, where he is right there crying out, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So we see mockery here, the same mockery that that Jesus experienced on the cross. And we've experienced that kind of mockery too. And David has experienced that kind of mockery that he's writing about here. He's saying, but I'm a worm, I'm, a, I'm not a man, I'm despised, I'm at the bottom of the heap, I'm, I'm beat up, I'm all alone, I'm, I'm picked on, I'm made fun of, I'm physically abused, I'm emotionally tormented. He's saying, that's where I am. He's saying, God, I feel completely abandoned. Now, I remember that you're this rescuing God, but I'm not rescued. Where, where are you, God? And then now he 
goes back again and reminds himself that God's a rescuing God, but this time he puts it very personally, right? So the first time the pattern is this big idea of God's a rescuing God, and then the second time the pattern is in the specifics of his life. See, look at how he, he ties in his own life. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. I want to focus in first on 9 and 10. This, this pattern of, of crying out to God, honestly, God, I'm all alone, I need help. And then reminding ourselves, God, you're the kind of person that rescues people. You're the kind of God that rescues people. And then back again, God, I'm all alone. I'm a worm. I'm getting crushed. And then he reminds himself again, but God, you're the kind of God that shows grace. And he uses his own testimony, right? We, we usually think of the word testimony in Christian circles. If you've grown up in churches, we usually think of testimony as, like, I used to do bad stuff, and then I met Jesus, and now I do good stuff. You know, this kind of dramatic turn, shift of life. But a testimony is also, God, you, you place me on the breast of a mother that loved you. You, you put me in a family that loves you. You've shown grace to me by the context in which you've placed me. And so he's personalizing my story, God, is a story where you have communicated your grace to me. So that might have happened for you when you were 22 years old. That might have happened to you at birth. God put you in a family that loved God, that took you to church, that read you the scriptures, that disciplined you in love and in grace and consistency. I don't know where that story started, but you can place yourself in that story. You can say... God, you, you tricked me into coming to this church when I was 32 years old. Or, you know, whatever your story is, right? Somehow, God's intervened in your life and he's not communicating his grace. So you're learning to trust him despite your pain, despite your struggle. And then he prays this final prayer one more time in this section, this final cry, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Right, so he's circling back around to the phrase of first one. You're far from me. Now he's saying, God, please don't be far from me. Please don't be far from me. Please, please help me. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. He's all alone. Any other gods he trusted in before have abandoned him now. And many of us have experienced this in life where, where your false gods now have, have failed to help you. They're not rescuing you anymore, right? And so there's none to help you. And that's both a, a horrifying, scary place to be, but it's also a, a great place to be when we finally entrust ourselves to God instead of those other junior gods we've been trying to trust, right? And maybe after 10 years of serial relationships where you finally say, okay, the, the God of the right partner is not going to save me. I'm going to have to entrust myself to the God of the universe. I'm going to cry out to him because there's none to help. You may have been entrusting yourself to your bank account, to your career, and it may be a dead end now. And so as painful as that is to be at rock bottom, it's also a place where you can finally say, there's no one else to help God. No one else is there. No one else is strong enough to say, God, will you save me? Will you help me? Please don't be far from me. It feels like you're far away, but please don't be far from me. We, we have this model prayer that King David prayed in Psalm 22. We also see again that Jesus was praying this prayer on the cross, right? He said... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? Many think he prayed the whole thing from the, from the cross. And that the, the quote we have in Matthew is just to, to show us, yeah, he, he prayed that song, right? We're not sure exactly how far he went, but he's praying this sort of thing himself from the cross. 
We also have the picture of him praying in the garden. And that's a beautiful picture as well. I have a, a, just a snapshot from the movie, The Passion. In this movie, The Passion, we see that acted out. We see that depicted. But we have the story in Matthew and in other places of Jesus praying in the garden. And what we have is Jesus saying, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Right? I don't want to go through this suffering, God. Yet not my will, but your will be done. So we have this, this model again of this back and forth, just like the cries of suffering in Psalm 22, verses 1 through 11. We have the back and forth between, I am in anguish, I'm suffering, this is horrible, this is painful, God help me out of this, but God, I'm entrusting myself to you. You know what you're doing, ultimately I'm trusting you. And so the model we see in Jesus is, is both sides, right? Neither becoming a stoic that just says, yeah, life is suffering, that's all right, I'm not worried about it, right? And that's, it's not really Christianity to be a stoic. We need to admit, suffering's bad, I don't like suffering, right? We can cry out to God in the midst of our suffering, God help me, God rescue me, God save me, please. But we also can entrust ourselves to him and say, but God, you know what you're doing, and I'm entrusting myself to you. You may give me healing now, or you may wait until later. I'm entrusting myself to you. I know ultimately you're the God that rescues. And I'm trusting you to save me. You might save me now. You might save me later. I'm entrusting myself to you. Your will be done. And so the model we have in Jesus is he was willing to face that suffering for us. So again, not only does he suffer like us, and, and he knows what it's like, but he suffered for us. He took our place on the cross. Hebrews says, for the, for the joy that was set before him. He went there for us. Not my will, but your will be done, he prayed. So, so what's the model we see here in these first 11 verses? I want to just give you a model of praying. The first one is to be honest about your feelings with God. When you feel abandoned, when you feel all alone, when you feel like God is not there, to tell him that. Not say, i got to get my junk together and clean this all up before I can pray again. Just talk to him where you are, there. Allow him to clean you up. Say, God, I feel abandoned. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand these circumstances that I'm going through. And then the second thing we see in the psalm is remind yourself of his mighty acts in the past. Right? And so this is where we would often say that you want to have scripture and prayer merged in your life. Right? You want to pray scripture. You want to read scripture and then pray. You want to pray and then read scripture. You want to to knit all of that together. Remind yourself of God's mighty acts in the past. He's the kind of God that saved people in the past. God, I I see in your word that this is what you've done. And that's what uh, David was doing in this psalm. He was saying, our fathers trusted in you. You rescued them. We've seen this in our history, in our sacred literature. It's, It's written down. It's recorded what you've done. So remind yourself of that too. And then also remind yourself of what he's done in your life. Recount his grace in your own personal life, your own testimony. Again, for some of you, that is like, you, you placed me in this home that loved you. That was beautiful. Or it may be, no, that was a mess and a nightmare, but at 25 or at 35 or at 65, you showed yourself to me. And remind yourself of how God has engaged you personally as well. This is a pattern that's laid out for us here. There's books that I would recommend as well. You know I love books, and so too that I've recommended a lot are Praying Life. It teaches you how to pray in this way by Paul Miller. It's a fantastic book. And then Redemption by Mike Wilkerson, which is a great book that focuses more on the feeling forsaken side, but then growing through that in the gospel. 
two of my absolute favorite books. Also, Celebrate Recovery. I want to continue to recommend that, our ministry that meets on Monday nights. And the focus is on just a systematic way of helping you deal with whatever struggles, habits, addictions you may be struggling with. Walking you through that, how to walk as a disciple of Jesus through those difficulties. So that section is the cry of suffering, right? It's this back and forth between your reality and the truth of who God is. And again, that's our theme of this whole series. Collide. Emotion meets truth in the Psalms. That's where he's going. He's going back and forth. God, I feel forsaken, but I know that you're a rescuing God and wrestling back and forth with God in prayer. This next section is more dramatic even. And so I've titled this section, The Horrors of Suffering. And this is the section that I think maybe the artists will relate to the most. Uh, For those of you that are non-artists, what I would say is you get to pray what other artists have written for you, right? So you can benefit from their artisticness. But here you see him painting a a cartoonish picture of, of horror and of these monsters, right? He's really talking about these people that are hurting him, that are chasing him, that are abusing him, that are tormenting him physically and emotionally. But he's painting them as these wild, ravenous animals, right? So he's using the paintbrush of an artist to paint how horrible his situation is. And so those of us that are non-artists can learn from this. This is, this is good for us to uh, be melodramatic sometimes, right? So those of you that are, that are like me, that are kind of like level all the time, like we can learn from those people in our life that are more dramatic. There's something good in this sometimes of being able to express emotion in vivid ways. So look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he's giving this picture of these wild, abusive animals. And we see, of course, this being fulfilled very dramatically in the Gospels, right? We see that in the four Gospels. Parts of this fulfilled very vividly in Jesus' abuse and torture and crucifixion. But also, going back to the original writing of this, we see a model of expressing the pain we're going through in vivid ways. And I want to press that with us here, that this is a model we see throughout the Psalms. So like I said earlier, some of you are artists, and you can express yourself this way already, right? God may have just wired you this way, and people in your life try to get you to express yourself this way less, right? You might be pressed to, let's not be so expressive, okay? But some of us are less expressive, and we can learn from this model. And so you may not feel capable of writing this way or painting this kind of vivid picture, But it's in the Psalms for you to pray. It's in the songs that we sing, right? Sometimes we sing weird songs. Those of you that are not artistic are like, I don't like that line. That's weird. It doesn't make sense, right? Well, it does make sense. It's it's vivid ways of explaining God's glory, his greatness, our weakness, 
our smallness, his power, his saving work. And so we express that in creative ways, in symbolic ways, in artistic ways, just like David did here in the Psalms. And it's supposed to make us wrestle. It's supposed to make us struggle. I have a picture here of this uh, wild animals here. This reminded me of, I thought this would be kind of a heavy sermon, so I thought I would start with this picture. This is a picture of my wife and I riding mechanical bulls. This was... This was 10 years ago, okay? We, we bounced a lot quicker back then than we do now. I think we would just kind of lay there and not be able to move this time. Um, so that was just for a little fun. We have ridden mechanical bulls once in our life. There's a real bull throwing somebody. Um, how many of you have ever been to the rodeo? Anybody here been to the rodeo? Okay. I recommend that. If, if the Army's got you here for just a few years, you've got to go to the rodeo at least once before you move away, okay? Got to go. Uh, the power of these bulls, they are strong, they are powerful, and, and you, if you've been up close, you recognize, I don't want to be gored by a bull, right? I don't want that to happen. And so this language becomes even more vivid when you've seen these kind of animals, or if you've been to the zoo and seen a lion's huge teeth, right? These are the kinds of images that David is using here in this psalm. He's using vivid, like I said, melodramatic images, over-the-top imagery to paint a picture of suffering and pain. And there's something very valuable of ex- expressing ourselves. There's a reason that, that uh, catharsis is a very important part of psychotherapy, right? There's a lot of things in what modern psychologists do that we would just throw out and say, oh, that's a bunch of garbage. But there's kind of a universal agreement among all different kinds of therapy that also agrees with scriptural wisdom that expressing your pain is helpful in the healing process. So that's, that's where there would be a bridge, where we would say as Christians, yeah, I agree, I don't like everything that pagan psychotherapists say, but expressing your pain is actually helpful. Right? It is good to actually get it out, and we see this modeled in the Psalms. David vividly saying they're like wild animals, they're like these wild dogs. And just another textual note or historical note, they didn't have little poodles with sweaters on back then, right? Think... Think wild dogs, right? Think pack of wolves or think the scary hyenas from the Lion King, right? They're like, ah, and they're scary and they want to attack you. That, that's what he's talking about. He's not like, and these cute little poodles were coming against me. You know, it's, it's <laughs> this roving band of wild dogs that would, you know, eat stuff out of the city dump and, and chase little smaller animals and children and the weak. That's the image that he's talking about. So he's given this very vivid, vivid aggressive, violent, scary imagery here feeling attacked. And I want to challenge you, no, no matter what you've gone through, you need to learn to express that. That's a, that's a healthy uh, emotional habit. Express it out loud. This is key if you've struggled with PTSD or with any other kind of abuse or emotional problems. If you've been through something horrible, you, you need to talk about it. You need to say it out loud, whether it's to a counselor or whether that's through journaling. And so a homework assignment I would like to give you this week specifically is just make this psalm your own. Rewrite this psalm yourself. And you can just go with the major movements, right? You can just use the sections. You don't have to, like, translate every single verse. But you've got the first section. It's just this, God, I feel abandoned, but I know you're rescuing God, right? You can put that in your own words. This second section is painting the picture of those who have hurt you as monsters, as wild animals. You know, use whatever creative a way of doing that that you want to do. But rewrite this and personalize it yourself. And then the final section is the, the hope we have of, 
of the whole future of everything being made right, all tribes and tongues worshiping God, of ultimate rescue. You could rewrite that section as well. Another psalm that we didn't get to teach in the series is Psalm 13, which is a shorter one. So if, if 31 verses in Psalm 22 is freaking you out for this homework assignment, you can try Psalm 13, okay? You might try that one. It's, it's very similar, and you might try rewriting that in your own words and making it your own. You don't have to show it to anybody. It might be helpful just to do it by yourself. It might be really helpful, though, to show it to somebody as well, to share it with a trusted friend. But it's, it's good to get this stuff out to express it. Um, we have a lot to learn from artistic people. They're, they're good models for us in this way. Like I said, sometimes those of us that are less artistic wish the artistic creative people would be less creative. Um, but for those of us that aren't creative, it's good to express the stuff. It's good to get it out. It's a good exercise to go through. Um, the next section is the end of suffering. The end of suffering, and this has really two meanings. I mean, the end of suffering, and one meaning is just, it's over, right? There's going to come a day where there's no more suffering. The other meaning of end is purpose, right? That's, that's a more uh, ancient way of using the word ends, right? You talk about ends maybe when you're talking about goals and strategies. It is purpose, like where are you trying to go? And this is the worldwide praise of God. That, that's where this is going. Our suffering is going there. We're caught up in God's purposes for the world. And that's an important thing to, to understand. Now, we can get derailed uh, philosophically trying to understand how this all works out. I mean, the basic big idea is that God is not the author of evil, but that God can use evil to do good things. And when we keep trying to drill down about how he does that, we don't really know. We can't really make a lot of sense of that, but the scripture trusts that God is sovereign even over those bad things, that he can use those, he can turn those for good in our lives. We see that in the testimony of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. It's a really beautiful testimony there, but we, of course, see that through the rest of the scripture, Romans chapter 8. All things work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we can trust uh, that God never wastes a hurt, as they say in Celebrate Recovery. That God can use these things for good, even though they were evil, they were horrible. So we see this in verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. Actually, we'll, we'll back up to 19. That's kind of a transitionary point from the monsters of the middle section to the rescue of the last section. We have a transition here, starting in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So here he's focusing in on the congregation. He's focusing in on the tribal worship of this strange people, the Jews. This people that brought us our Savior Jesus. They are a particular tribe in a particular place. God happened to place them at the crossroads of every empire that's ever existed, right? So a very strategic tribe and a very strategic place, but it's a particular people. And he's placed them here, and David's talking about their tribal worship in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. There. Uh, at the capital of their country, their people, their nation. But then we're going to see this transitions out to all the nations. It's always been God's purposes to work through the Jews to reach all the nations. And we're like in the halfway point of that, right? Like 
we're from all these other nations, not Jews who have been reached by the Jews, namely Jesus. And this thing is spreading. It's like a wildfire taking over the whole world. So let's look at where he goes here. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Amen. Amen. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's the promise. This worldwide reversal of death and brokenness. God is eventually going to heal everything. Eventually all things are going to be made right. There's an end to suffering that's coming. And so God may heal us now. You may have been healed from your sickness, but you're still going to get sick and die, right? And so we enjoy and praise God for his temporary healings. But we're looking forward to the, the final healing, the end of all suffering. That's the future we're going to, and it includes a worldwide revival of every tongue and tribe, every nation, every color, every brand worshiping Jesus. That's the, the future that we're headed to. And God uses our suffering in the process. I want you to see how God works through the suffering of his people, Israel. He works through the suffering of his king, David, and he worked in the greatest way through the suffering of Jesus. Jesus' suffering is the ultimate suffering where Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross and he offers us his perfect righteousness. So if we trust in him, we can have a restored relationship with God. And then the Apostle Paul says something crazy in the New Testament. He says we get to deliver that suffering through our suffering. He says this in Colossians 1.24. He says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions in my own flesh. I don't really like that verse, but it helps make sense of the end of suffering. The purpose of suffering is that our suffering God uses to deliver Jesus' suffering to the world. When you just read that verse in Colossians 1.24, it sounds like Paul is saying there's something lacking in Jesus' suffering. Uh, but the Greek grammar, there's a parallel in uh, Philippians. So if you all want to study this later, it's Colossians 1.24 is the verse. And the parallel is in Philippians 2.30. So Colossians 1.24 is paralleled in Philippians 2.30. And in Philippians 2.30, it's described uh, that he's bringing a gift. Someone uh, was out of money and this money was being delivered, right? It hadn't been delivered yet. And so we can see in that parallel that when Paul talks about his suffering, uh, bringing what's lacking in Christ's suffering, he's talking about this as a delivery, right? God uses my suffering to bring the suffering of Jesus to people that haven't met the suffering of Jesus yet. And so this is going to become more and more important in our culture, where more and more Christians will have opportunities to suffer for the name of Christ. And I obviously don't know exactly where our culture is going, but it seems like the direction things are tipping now. And we need to remember that our hope is not in uh, everything going our way. Our hope is in the future, where all suffering is going to be ended by Jesus, where all things are going to be made right. And in the now we carry our cross and follow Jesus. 
In the now, he uses our suffering to deliver more Jesus to our neighbors and to our friends. So that's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, of course I'd rather go to heaven and be with Jesus, but I think he has me here now for fruitful labor for others, right? Of course I want to go to heaven and be saved and have everything fixed. Most of us don't have that attitude. Most of us think, no, I'd rather stay here in my favorite chair with my remote control going to my favorite restaurant. This is heaven for me now. Paul's attitude was, yeah, this world is full of suffering and pain. Of course, I'd rather be in heaven where suffering will end and everything will be made right. But I know God has left me here in the world of suffering to deliver Jesus' suffering to others, to share that with others. I have a picture here of uh, folks in East India worshiping a worship service in an Indian church. I had a friend uh, that worked for many years in Kashmir, which is a, a disputed state, kind of a war-torn state between India and Pakistan. And I remember one time him showing me a video of some friends of his, and he said, look at this. This is the first time that people of this tribe in Kashmir in India are worshiping and writing worship music in their own style and in their own language. The first time in history. The gospel is broken into this new tribe, and now they're not just translating Western songs. They're writing their own scripture songs themselves. It was just an incredible moment to see history unfold on this little video recording that I was watching. We're a part of that right now. The gospel is breaking out into new tribes and cultures where people will worship differently than us. They will look different than we do, but all tongues and tribes will worship Jesus. All tongues and tribes, all people will name him as their Lord. And that's the future we're heading to. That's the end of our suffering. Not just it all goes away, but there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose God wants to use us in the process. My question for you is, how are you being used by him? In your suffering, how are you testifying to your hope in Jesus in the process? Because we all suffer. Don't just stay in the complaint. Be honest, right? Right, like God doesn't save other people by looking at our lives and and thinking that our lives are perfect and, and spotless, right? But we can be honest about it, but we also want to move towards that praise of God as the only source of rescue, as our hope in the midst of our suffering. How are you sharing that with others? I know you're doing it in ways that I don't even understand, but I want to encourage those of you that aren't to take steps. Pray for your friends. Pray for those you work with. Pray for your neighbors. Take opportunities to share with them the hope that you have in Jesus. Take opportunities to understand where they find their hope so that you can better Pray for them and better communicate with them the hope that you have in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We see this all come to fulfillment in Jesus as he's on the cross. Matthew 27 tells us on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has experienced suffering more intensely than we could ever understand, but he faced that willingly for us to give us life. Let me pray God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us in the the person of Jesus. Thank you for the, the purpose you give us in our suffering of sharing Jesus with others. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.